1: A vegan pantry looks a lot like
0: any home pantry. Veganizing something sometimes means like leaving it alone never
1: be vegan because they are really out there and i couldn't live without cheese and then we eat the cheese and then we eat the bambi all vegans hate the idea that everyone <laughs> That's thinks just we just salad. eat salad That's all we yeah like we live off of salad it's all we ever make <laughs> tell me why i should eat cashew cheese you have to chill out on cashews like they're <laughs> everywhere jenna <laughs> you have to chill we cannot put cashew cheese and cashew cream and everything and i was like okay gotcha gotcha sounds good like enough on the cashews <laughs> one
0: more Hi, and welcome to Burnt Toast from Food52.com, a podcast about what doesn't make it onto the website. I'm Kenzie Wilbur, the managing editor of Food52, and I'm here with Meryl Stubbs. Hey, Meryl. Hi. Our guest today is blogger and writer Jenna Hamshaw, who just wrote one of our forthcoming series books on uh, vegan food. Hey, Jenna. Hey, Kenzie. What's up? Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about vegan food, um, particularly about how it's not rabbit food. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm going to try and get you to convince me to try cashew cheese again. Okay. That sounds good. So, by the end of the episode, easy task. Okay. (laughs) Okay, great.
2: We like to set the bar low.
0: (laughs) So, Jenna, you have this really great line in your intro of the book about how vegan food is really just food. Can you start there and sort of tell
1: us what vegan food means to you? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one question I always, or at least a question I used to get asked, I think that because there are more vegans now, less people are asking me this question, but people always used to ask me, so so what do you eat? And this was usually after a lead up of questions that included, wait, so you don't eat dairy and you don't eat eggs and you don't eat fish and you don't eat meat, etc." And it left them with this just like bewilderment about what is vegan food? And I think one thing I've always tried to convey to people is that Vegan food is a lot of the food we're all eating. It's just, it doesn't include some of the other foods that a lot of us are eating, but it's vegetables and lentils and beans and whole grains and whole grain products, pastas and breads and toasts. So it, it really is just a lot of foods that I think are quite familiar to people. But I think the word vegan can be still very polarizing. And I think when people hear it, they assume that it is this unique cuisine, as if it's like a really exotic country somewhere. And it has this really <laughs> yeah. specific cuisine that, you know, you can only find in certain restaurants. This isolated island yeah. sort of floating. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And the, sort of this world unto itself, too, like surely there must must. must be all these specialty ingredients that are totally unique to vegan cooking. And it's true. I mean, nutritional yeast is probably something you will first encounter in a vegan recipe. That doesn't mean that non-vegans don't use it. But there are a couple things like that. But I think really for the most part, a vegan pantry looks a lot like any home pantry with a lot of the same staples and the same foods. And that's really what I've always tried to convey about my experience of being vegan. It's that I think I'm vegan and I'm also a food lover and I think that those two communities really can coexist and overlap and Mm -hmm. a lot of the foods I love are the same foods that I see my friends and family loving and eating too.
0: I feel like it's much more accepted these days to be a vegan or be a vegetarian and people don't talk about it like, oh, this is a scary anomaly anymore, but I think that there's definitely still that thought about, "Well, well, I could never do that or it must be so different from what I'm doing and that's actually not even the case.
1: Absolutely. And every vegan has said those words, too. I used to be the person I didn't. I I stopped eating meat when I was very, very young. But I ate poultry and fish all through high school. And even after I gave up poultry and fish and was lacto of a vegetarian, I still was the person who was always declaring I could never be vegan because they are really out there and I couldn't (laughs) live without cheese. Oh, my gosh. You know, so I think It it really is just sort of a spectrum, and where you choose to be comfortable is totally your choice. But I think all of the declarations about how impossible it is are definitely... They usually tend to to not be true in the end, and probably
2: come from people who just have no experience yeah, with it, right? Totally, totally. So, how did you come to veganism? I think everyone would probably love to know that.
1: Yeah. So when I was eight, I saw Bambi for the first time, and my mom had made steak that evening. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> until this point, I grew up in a Greek American home, and my mother and my grandmother made, you know, they like like a lot of. Greek people, they made plenty of vegetables, but it was very meat heavy. I think when people hear Greek, they think Mediterranean diet, and they think it's all like arugula and white beans and fish, but it's actually like I a think lot lamb. of cassari cheese, <laughs> right, and lamb, yeah. and whatever. So there was the steak on the on the plate that night, and I looked down at it, having spent like an hour crying about Bambi's mom, Aww. and I just looked up at my mom, and I was like, nah. And I had actually <laughs> never been a big meat eater, but that was just the sort of moment where for purely sort of visceral reasons... That was it. And my mom was pretty great about it. It it wasn't too difficult to work around no red meat, which is kind of the only thing I didn't want to eat. Um, and as I said, I, I sort of continued eating poultry and fish all through high school. And then soon after college, I cut that out, too. And then I was having a bunch of digestive problems, and a doctor floated the idea of giving up dairy for a while just to see how I felt. And I thought, okay, I'll I'll try that. And I did feel a pretty remarkable improvement. And at that point, I didn't really care for eggs. I wasn't eating dairy. I figured I was pretty close to vegan, and I would just try it out and see what it was like. And I I didn't really expect to become vegan, and in fact, I didn't tell anyone that I was trying to be vegan. It was this reminds me of when I had quit smoking several years prior, and I didn't tell anyone because I didn't want to be held accountable. Like I didn't <laughs> in case you I fell didn't, off the wagon. Right, exactly, it was a similar <laughs> thing. Like I didn't want to declare myself vegan because I just didn't know if it was going to be right for me. Um, But a year later, I had had this really wonderful experience of learning to cook all this amazing vegan food, and it was actually probably the richest culinary year of my life, because I didn't grow up in a home where we cooked a lot, and I... I really think that by going vegan, I taught myself how to cook, and I was using all these flavors and ingredients that were new and interesting to me, and nothing felt lacking. Everything just felt really abundant. So at that point, I was like, okay, I guess I'm vegan now, and that's cool. (laughs) And then things got a little bit more richer and interesting for me because a year later, I volunteered at a farm animal sanctuary for an event they had around the holiday season. And having grown up in New York City, I had never really been around farm animals. In a lot of ways, I was actually a pretty unlikely candidate to be vegan because I wasn't a very sort of obvious animal lover, you know. Except for Bambi, marks growing up, yeah, <laughs> yes,
2: exactly. Except for a cartoon version of, <laughs> exactly. of a exactly. <laughs> Except
1: for Bambi, um, but I had had very little experience with like actually interacting with animals firsthand. And that that definitely had a really big impact. And then I got much more interested in the political and the social component of being vegan and just in the animal rights argument. So I tend to tell people that I sort of became vegan for taste and health and I've stayed vegan for animals. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how it's gone.
0: Every single time you've said dairy and cheese, I think of Merrill Because <laughs> why is that? <laughs> because if, for those of you who don't know, Merrill <laughs> loves cheese so much. And so I'm assuming you're not flirting with the idea of becoming a vegan, but it makes me think about how veganism doesn't necessarily have to be that exclusionary, and all or nothing. Like, yeah, how do we yeah. feel about things like VB six, where like we eat this way until six p.m. and then and then we eat the cheese and then we eat the Bambi, <laughs>
2: like venison.
0: As a as a <laughs> vegan and and one who you know one who writes about it is very passionate about it. How do you feel about stuff like that?
1: I think my answer is that I think it's all to the good. You know, I mean, as someone who is a vegan who feels very strongly about veganism and about animal rights, I'm always really excited when someone does want to go all the way with it and embrace the lifestyle. And that includes not just food, but also, you know, vegan apparel and all the other sort of lifestyle components, like not buying leather and whatever. Um, So I really think the, the going wholesale with it is a wonderful thing. And I'm always encouraging when people want to do that. But I also recognize that there is this spectrum and I myself was on it for so many years, you know, sort of Experimenting with eliminating one thing and seeing how I felt. And I think I actually had a very successful and gentle transition to being vegan because at no point did I feel like I had to just radically overhaul my life and give up a bunch of things that I was accustomed to that I enjoyed, so I think the moderate approach is a really important one, and I think it can probably speak to more people than the idea of just becoming vegan overnight. You know, um, there are some people whose vegan stories work like that, but that's not my story, and I I think that the flexitarian model is good because no matter what, it's helping animals, it's introducing more vegetarian and vegan dishes to people, and that's often the starting point of wanting to do more and more meatless meals at home. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't think there is any argument against something like that. I think it can only be positive.
0: I love your book because it's, it, they're just, I mean, they're just good recipes. I yeah, I am so far from a vegan. Like, I, I mean, I eat fairly <laughs> vegetarian, just you know, for budget reasons and because it's it's easier and it makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. But I eat everything and I have butter in my fridge and I have meat in my freezer, probably like in the depths of my freezer. But I still I still cook your recipes and I love them and that's some that's a way that we talk about your book all the time. What did Kristen say? It's the book that um, convinced our butter-loving editors to <laughs> crave tofu, which is a real thing. I was very scared of tofu for a while.
1: I <laughs> think a lot of people have had really bad tofu experiences, myself included. If you have one bad tofu texture experience, <laughs> yeah. that's enough the to scar turn you, off you off for, for life. life. Yeah, oh, yeah. Tell
0: us about your bad tofu experience. <laughs> I think I <laughs> had I it know. like
1: in college once in like the cafeteria, and I think it was your classic. No one had pressed it or removed any moisture from it, so it was sort of soppy and and grainy it, and grainy, and like the beauty of tofu, right, is that it absorbs sauces and flavor. So, if it's done correctly in like a really vibrant sauce, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But it was just kind of piled on top of some noodles and it had absorbed oh. zero flavor, and it was totally bland and under seasoned. <laughs>
2: right. I, I actually learned to love tofu in college, funnily enough, because my, my roommate and, and best friend was vegetarian in college. And so she actually got me hooked on tofu because she prepared it really well. Actually, I realize we haven't mentioned the fact that Jenna is and has has been a columnist on Food52 for a long time. Yes. She writes a really popular column called The New Veganism. Mm-hmm. And it really, I mean, sort of did the same thing that the, this book has done. I think it, it kind of opened up the world of vegan cooking to our audience and to all of us in the office mm-hmm. in this amazing way.
0: I remember that first recipe. That kale salad with the yep. ap- way before it was like super uncool to talk about kale salad. <laughs> to put right. kale your it was two thousand twelve. <laughs> it's a while ago.
1: Uh-huh. Um with that apricot vinaigrette and lentils, I think. Mm-hmm. It was yep. yeah, like French lentils. I remember Having mixed feelings about doing that as my first, because I was like, "Oh man, I'm vegan writing for a non-vegan food publication, and I the first recipe I give is a salad, because all vegans hate the idea that everyone thinks we just eat salad. Yeah, like we live off of salad; it's all we ever make. Mm-hmm. But I also thought there was it was kind of a fun challenge to be like, okay, maybe we do eat a lot of salad, and sometimes salads can be really hearty and mm-hmm. surprising. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that that recipe turned out.
0: Have you ever just tried to make something that you've totally, totally failed? Oh,
1: God, just yeah. It's been a total flop. Oh, yeah. My first vegan cream of broccoli soup was just terrible. It was... I don't remember what I used as, like, the creamy component, but I had not yet discovered the trick of blending cashews into everything when you want it to be creamy and delicious. So I think, you know, I probably used soy milk or something, and it just was no good. Um, and, of course, that was, like, the vegan soup I was going to serve to my mom to prove to her that vegan soups are great. It's a total bust. Um and I've had some bad tofu on my own, too. Like, no matter how many times I make tofu and, like, really try to master it, there are definitely recipes in which it does not work mm-hmm. out in the way you thought it would. So I've had a couple of those. But I think I've also developed a sense of, like, what can be successfully veganized and how and what can't be. And there are some recipes, like, just don't try, you know. Mm-hmm. I I've, I think that's true of, like, certain pasta recipes I've seen that rely really heavily on certain cheeses. It's, like, it's going to be really hard to make that as authentically right as it is and perfect. And I also, as much as I love the challenge of veganizing stuff, I also, I really respect recipes and I I do kind of feel that I recognize when they are exactly as they should be and mm-hmm. shouldn't be tampered with.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really important distinction that, you know, veganizing something sometimes means, like, leaving it alone yeah. and, and not eating it or eating something else. I mean, yeah. I think the important thing about your food is that It just happens to be vegan. It's not trying to pretend to be other things. And when you talk about your cream of broccoli soup or you have this tempeh bacon, which is really amazing, that seems to fly in the face of that. But actually, I think what it's doing is kind of giving like your eaters a cue about what to expect, you know, because it's. It's the things that we're used to. And it sort of tastes like that, but it's also something completely different.
1: People do get sensitive about that when you usurp a name of a recipe. And I, I think there are some people who feel insulted. And, um, you know, half of me really respects that because, again, like I respect food traditions and I I respect that these are like time-honored recipes that mean a very specific thing to people. But, you, you know, I also try to keep in mind a lot of people who are new to vegan cuisine really don't know what to expect from a lot of it. And if you do give them those cues and if you can suggest to them, like, No, banana ice cream, like whipped frozen bananas is not ice cream per se, but it's cool and it's sweet and it's creamy and it's got this wonderful. Yeah, it evokes a certain feeling. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another way of uniting food lovers. Like if we can move beyond this really literal way of talking about food and actually say like there is an experience. That this recipe encapsulates, and yeah. there are lots of different ways to find that experience. That's yeah. kind of what I'm always thinking yeah, about. Yeah, that's a great point.
0: We actually do that with so many other foods, regardless of trying to, you know, fit them into a special diet. That one yeah. ingredient ice cream is a great example. Like, yeah. it's, it's it's not ice cream. Yeah, it's, it's not, not <laughs> ice cream. But we're all—it's also, you know, not marketed for a demographic of people on special diets. Yeah, it's right. buzzy because it's one ingredient. Exactly. Um, well, I
2: think it happens all the time with um, international. Recipes. I mean, you know, I can think, I can, I can think of several examples right off the top of, of my head of times where we have published a recipe that you know, let's say it's like a bolognese or something, mm-hmm. but it's not made in the traditional right. bolognese fashion, and someone gets really bent out of shape inevitably if you use a term that mm-hmm. you know people feel sort of ownership over and it has this sort of like technical definition, yeah. and I always my reaction to that is always i'm I'm a little bit mystified by the by the strength of people's negative reactions when when something yeah. like that happens because I feel that it is about the spirit of the dish. And, you know, those details to me don't really matter so much. But yeah. they do really matter to to some people
1: they do. And I, again, you know, you do understand why because like there are these culinary traditions that we want to see passed down and respected but I I do think it can be in some ways a little stifling to think that way and like I think about the genius recipe column which has really inspired me in a lot of ways and I think part of the heart of that column is saying like Here's a way of doing something that's actually a little untraditional and maybe seems like a shortcut, but gets you to mm-hmm. sometimes an elevated result. Mm-hmm. And if we don't take those risks, then I think we stop being creative with food and that's no yeah, good. Yeah, you're either. just staying in the same place. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That kind of steadfast holding to what a recipe is supposed to be is at once a really beautiful thing, but also a really limiting one. Mm-hmm. And there's a great story of Amanda's tortilla. And yep. she made a, she made a Spanish of. tortilla, which we eventually changed changed the name to be Spanish-ish tortilla, which is <laughs> consequently, like, the biggest mouthful ever. <laughs> I'm and not I'm re- very Google-friendly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And very bad SEO. Um, very bad for saying on podcasts. That's amazing. But w- we sort of were, were not bullied into that. But, I mean, people got so up in arms. And we were—she was using, you know, that dish as a reference point. And I think it's really important to remember that not everything, you know, sticks to— all of these guidelines and things are reference points. That's the whole point of recipe development and making something vegan is no different. Yeah. Did you did you have I mean, you've written a book before. Did you look to any certain books for inspiration while you were doing this one? I really didn't.
1: I remember the first our first task was to sort of pull the recipes from the column that we felt really sort of embodied what the spirit of the column and and also the spirit of the book were about. And that was That was a fun process. It sort of, it was a fun process of looking back on like greatest hits and thinking about what really captures the spirit of the new veganism.
0: I'm curious Um, if there's one that you think in particular does. mm. Like what would you be if you were a vegan recipe? Mm, I like it.
2: Your vegan spirit animal. My
1: vegan spirit animal. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, salads, always salads. I do love them so much. I think actually in this current book, the lentil salad with cashew cheese, yeah, another lentil, mm-hmm. another lentil and green mix. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of like the first kale salad I did, is something that just feels very me for whatever reason. It's certainly not the fanciest recipe in the book. I think of of ones that have been published on the site. A lot of the soups and stews feel very much like they have my fingerprints all over them. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a kabocha squash and tofu curry which I love and make all so the good. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know the 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 peanut and sweet potato. Soup with kale Mm -hmm. is another big favorite. The creamy carrot soup. So, a lot of those feel very much like me. Your Um,
0: soup. Yeah.
1: But I would say that, like 95% of the time, when I'm thinking about recipes, it's just stuff that sounds great to me, that I really want to eat, that I would want to make again and again. And that's totally how we came up with the table of contents for the book. It was yeah. all just vegan recipes that had been on my mind as things I really wanted to try that I think would have a lot of appeal to other people. And that sounded great.
0: Mm-hmm. As we said before, because this book has such a non, a largely non-vegan audience and we're marketing it that way, were there any things that your non-vegan editors were very stringent about you not including or talking about in any way?
1: Yeah, so there were there were a couple of guidelines. There was a really hilarious moment where my 10-speed editors were like, you have to chill out on cashews. Like, they're everywhere, Jenna. You have to chill. We cannot put cashew cheese and cashew cream and everything. And I was like, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Sounds good. Like, enough on the cashews. One more? So that was that was a really hilarious moment. And I was like, all right, we're, we're going to be cool with cashews. The other, I think the only other thing that really felt I, well, two more things, actually, I should say. The first was that we wanted to stay away from a lot of like vegan simulacrums of something that were really, really literal, like, you know, just a vegan version of ribs or something like, mm-hmm. you know, we were trying to stay away from recipes that are difficult to veganize. But and doing so would force us to be really kind of unimaginative. Mm-hmm. Um and we were trying to think more sort of creatively about what we could do with vegetables. So that was another guiding principle. We w- we weren't trying to just make vegan replicas of like mainstream like a omnivore, vegan carbonara, right? Um <laughs> sounds like, like, like it would just be
2: awful. Exactly,
1: it would <laughs> just, just be, it's just spaghetti. Yeah. Yep. We were we were steering clear of that, which I was totally on board with. And then the final one, which I found to be the most challenging, was we were really trying to not use vegan like products, so vegan butters, vegan cheese replacements. And that was hard for me because it's funny, in my own cooking, like when my boyfriend and I eat together, I actually use very little of the vegan cheeses, the vegan yogurts, the vegan butters, because most of the time there is something that I think creates either the creaminess or the saltiness, the smoky flavor, whatever it is you're trying to go for. Like when I make a lentil soup, I'm never going to use faux bacon Mm -hmm. in it. I'm going to use smoked paprika because it, for me, does all of the same things. And sometimes there are certain dishes like casseroles and bakes where some you know, vegan cheese really does the trick because it's melty in ways that cashew cheese is never going to be. And so that was definitely a challenge. It forced me to realize that although I use those products very little, when they do serve a purpose, they serve it really well. But it was a great challenge in the end because I think it it forced me to be pretty innovative. And it did also force me to realize that I probably need those things much less than I think I do. And, you know, the biscotti and the brownies turned out great without earth balance.
0: Okay. So tell me why I should eat cashew cheese. Why should I try it again?
1: One thing you have to keep in mind is that cashew cheese isn't necessarily invented for you, for someone who can get goat cheese on a salad whenever you want to. I think there are certain vegan foods that are keeping in mind the fact that some vegans feel really strongly, that they really miss certain things that used to be part of their diet. And they would eat them every day if they thought it was the right thing to do, but they don't. So in those cases, it is really important to come up with what, you know, feels like an authentic replacement. It's That sense of urgency will never necessarily be the same for someone who isn't in that position. You know, in your case, why not just have cheese that is authentic and the real deal, so to speak? So that's something to keep in mind. And it may just be that you, for that reason, don't really feel like you need to go there. But I will say that from the sheer perspective of someone who loves food and is curious about food and what can be done with food, I would give it another shot because it is incredible what you can do with nuts. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I you know, cashew cheese it, it's more a goat cheese type, it's a soft cheese texture, it's not melty, it's not stringy, it's 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 never gonna be, you know, cheddar or, or mozzarella, but incredible things can be done with it and I think when you really nail the texture I think when people have bad cashew cheese experience it's usually very mealy and that's all they remember it's sort of that just like nut me. paste mm-hmm. and nut mush mm-hmm. and that's kind of like ooh, who wants nut mush that's not really yeah. Great. that's like my <laughs> worst nightmare but if you, if you can really get the consistency down and if you can add salt and lemon and give it that kind of tangy quality it can be really delicious and I should also say I mean this did not exist when I went vegan but there are now artisanal Nut cheese makers Miyoko, Miyoko who writes who wrote the book Miyoko or has the brand Miyoko's Kitchen and just wrote a book called The Homemade Vegan Pantry has an incredible line of vegan cheeses and they're all these flavors that we would think about with soft you know traditional mm-hmm, soft sure. cheeses. They're amazing. I mean, the flavor is incredible and the texture is really authentic. And that is true of more and more small brands that are taking this project on. And I think to some extent they are recognizing what no, can't be done. I think they're like, I'll all right, we're giving eggplant, up on cream LD like, cheese, which is it like, really it like hasn't happened like and I we I haven't like got go. a lot of good one. Let's Basically let that go. But solid. we can create soft Always cheeses that are plant based and really incredible. And a, like, they use, a lot of them use sort of a black, which is like a farmer's market. Sure. That gives Welcome that to
0: Bird Toast, a podcast quality. from Food 52 All about right. what doesn't always matter. I think we it need it to do website. a tasting of yeah, the I'm so sorry. And you just heard so. from sort the children of working working children my co host. Mm-hmm. There's true. Amanda Hester. I think, I I think we'll Meryl Scum and writer on Food 52 could You guys are readers. She's joining us for no other reason than that. We're hearing it's from a sparkler, gaggle of children we'll today. The plunge. There's Walker and Addison, sparked. who are nine. We have eight-year-old Dash, so if and then any Clara, of you want who's three. to pre-order our episode Jenna's today. is all about kids, cooking with them book, for them, and the rules we may, may or may not cashews. follow. <laughs> They'll be jumping on Also the known as, as. Food Fifty Two Vegan, <laughs> and we'll let Clara take it's, it. It's it's for pre-order right now on Food 52com Just head to our site and keep an eye out for what some fun giveaways we're going to be doing in the next few weeks. So that's Master it for this episode of Burnt Toast. Our producer is Tim Einenkel and thanks also to Laura Mayer and Annie Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what I you think of the show. The Our Twitter address is at Food52 and you can email us at editors at food52.com. Food like if you like the show, tell bed. everyone you know and subscribe like, to us on, I'm on not iTunes. If like you have people any people comments or questions about vegan food, we want to know about them. So tweet them and hashtag them are f 5 podcast or tune into Jenna's column on Food52 and leave them in the comment section. them Stubbs well, and Jenna Hamshaw. I'm Kenzie Wilbur. We'll talk I to you next say. time. Thanks for That's
1: listening. That's I'm going to. A-